How can we use our recovery tools to help us when our loved ones are suffering from mental illness? Is it even harder when our loved one is our child? Welcome to episode 348 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Helen, Marla, Kristen, Julie, Karen, and Ginny. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Helen, Marla, Kristen, Julie, Karen, and Ginny for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During the show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I'm your host today. And joining me today is Roberta. Welcome, Roberta. Thanks, Spencer, for having me. I'm here in gray, cold Michigan. We have some snow. We had a white Christmas. It was great. Woke up Christmas morning and it had snowed. Oh, beautiful. Um, I gather you probably don't have snow where you are. I am in Campbell, (laughs) California. So no, it is actually sunny and crisp outside my window right now. (laughs) You have a couple of readings we wanted to open with. The first reading I have is Discovering Choices. It's a book, one of our Al-Anon literatures. Chapter 10 is called Choosing Happiness. I'm going to read the first paragraph and the last. Some members describe acceptance as living life on life's terms. Acceptance means putting aside the wish that our situation could be different from what it is. It's a costly luxury to worry, obsess, criticize, or pine for something that we cannot have. We pay for this luxury with what we could have, the peace of mind that is available us today. To reach acceptance of our present circumstances, it is important to come to peace with our past and to heal old wounds. This work in turn assures us that we won't recreate our past relationships in the future. And then the last paragraph of that chapter is, It is our attitudes, not our relationships, which keep us trapped in the past. If we choose to be resentful and unhappy, it is not the fault of anyone else. As we change, the nature of our relationships will inevitably change. As we say in the suggested welcome to our meetings, so much depends on our own attitudes. As we learn to place our problem in its true perspective, we find it loses its power to dominate our thoughts and our lives. The family situation is bound to improve as we apply the Al-Anon, Alateen ideas. I just want to note that this book is in the the new mode of many Al-Anon books where it has a sort of introduction to the chapter, which is what you read from. And then it has a series of personal stories. Then it has a few questions at the end of the chapter. It's not only got the the inspirational stories and the thoughtful readings, but then invites me as the reader to dig a little deeper into the ideas that were brought out in the chapter. I think that that helps me more sometimes than just reading. And if I don't feel like answering the questions, I can just skip them. (laughs) Even though they have the, the thought for discussion questions. That's so interesting. I've read a lot of this book. I obviously didn't read it coherently. (laughs) That's understandable. 
You had a, another one also. I do. I have from the three views of Alan on, it's a pamphlet and in our literature and it's open letter from the alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. I need your help. Don't lecture, blame, or scold me. You wouldn't be angry with me for having cancer or diabetes. Alcoholism is a disease too. Don't pour out my liquor. It's just a waste because I can always find a ways of getting more. Don't let me provoke your anger. If you attack me verbally or physically, you will only confirm my bad opinion about myself. I hate myself enough already. Don't let your love and anxiety for me lead you into doing what I ought to do for myself. If you assume my responsibilities, you make failure to assume them permanent. My sense of guilt will be increased and you will feel resentful. Don't accept my promises. I'll promise anything to get off the hook, but the nature of my illness prevents me from keeping my promises, even though I mean them at the time. Don't make empty threats. Once you've made a decision, stick to it. Don't believe in everything I tell you. It may be a lie. Denial of reality is a symptom of my illness. Moreover, I'm likely to lose respect for those I can fool too easily. Don't let me take advantage of you or exploit you in any way. Love cannot exist for long without the dimension of justice. Don't cover up for me or try in any way to spare my consequences of my drinking. Don't lie for me, pay my bills, or meet my obligations. It may avert or reduce the very crisis that would prompt me to seek help. I can continue to deny that I have a drinking problem as long as you provide an automatic escape for the consequences of my drinking. Above all, do learn all you can about alcoholism and your role in relation to me. Go to open AA meetings when you can, attend Al-Anon meetings regularly, read the literature, and keep in touch with the Al-Anon members. They are the people who can help you see the whole situation clearly. I love you. You're alcoholic. I just love that. I looked the pamphlet up on the Al-Anon website. It's called Three Views of Al-Anon. Alcoholics Speak to the Family and Their Little Description says includes an open letter from an alcoholic and other insightful essays from AA members on why they recommend Al-Anon to the families and friends of alcoholics. When you started reading that, I'm an alcoholic, I need your help. I was like, yeah, of course. But then the kind of help they're asking for is not what I think, not definitely the kind of help I was trying to provide before I found Al-Anon. And I think that's the point, isn't it? Having the boundaries and yeah, I mean, pour, don't pour out my liquor. God, I remember in in the throes of my disease, trying to find it, being the seeker of trying to find the hidden bottles, and it would just be so angry when I would find them. Ugh. And I'm so grateful that I'm not as angry as I was. Although our topic today has brought me back to that anger, so it obviously wasn't gone forever. Yeah. My higher power likes to throw curveballs to say, ha, "Guess what? You're not in charge." <laughs> You wrote a share for the gratitude episode this year. I did. When I started reading that, it just really struck me in the heart. And I'd like to, to read it again. I know I read it in that episode, but you wrote, Dear Spencer and Recovery Show family, your outreach for gratitude couldn't come at a more perfect time. I'm currently sitting in the emergency room with my 14-year-old daughter who cannot keep from self-harming. I have lost count as to how many times I have been here with her. So much gratitude in desperate times. I'm grateful that my higher power can allow me to be vulnerable and show emotions around this craziness. 
I'm grateful my daughter can be honest and tell us she is not safe and will hurt herself. I'm grateful for my fellowship family that can help me navigate these murky waters I'm treading. I'm grateful for the love friends and family have shown. I'm grateful my ex-husband and I can come together for a common goal to help our baby girl. I'm grateful for my life and all the challenges it can bring. I'm grateful for fall color on the trees, the crispness in the air. I have but one life, and I'm grateful, not always, but grateful nevertheless that my higher power thinks so highly of me. I know this too shall pass, and we will be a stronger family in the end. I'm grateful for all you and your co-hosts offer, Spencer. Thank you, Roberta. Uh. <laughs> how, yeah, how is it hearing that again? I mean, you wrote that while you were sitting there, right? Yeah, she was literally trying to fall asleep. And I had just gotten your email and I know this is a safe place and I can be vulnerable. I had found out that she was going to ingest laundry detergent. I asked her about it because I had no clue. And a lot of times in these situations when you're adolescent and especially now with this pandemic, you can only have one parent. So they talk to the child without the parent in the room. And then they talk to the parent without the child in the room to make sure she's safe. That's, that's the bit bottom line. I'm like, why am I leaving? And I obviously in our uh, different circumstances, people, kids aren't safe. And that's probably why they choose this. So when I left the room, uh, yeah, the doctors made a call. I came back and we started talking and then they said, well, she's definitely had a plan. They see her chart. We belong to an organization. They can see how many times she's been there. I think what kills me is the sadness and the pity. And I, and I don't know, they don't mean to say pity, but I, I, I always get upset. Like I, when I finally told my family about this, I was like, don't say I'm sorry. Cause to me right now, that just sounds so trite. It's a sad situation, but there's so much gratitude around it. There's so much blessings around it that uh, it's even hard for me to sometimes comprehend. When I wrote that, she was trying to fall asleep and I was literally in a chair. It's awful. There's obviously no bed in the ER. And I'm like either standing up on the chair on the floor, standing up. And it was 12 hours until they could get her into a, I was there. I can't even, yeah. And I told my ex, I said, we are so good. I, I like to say that we are the poster parents for divorcees because I literally was spent the night at his house Christmas Eve, Christmas day, I woke up and we were all there together. So we definitely get along and we have a common goal. Like I said, it's to help our daughter and to help our other daughter. Navigating through this, we have an older daughter who's an adult and she struggled with mental illness and things like that. But I can't help her now. No, she's an adult and she does know I can just do it through osmosis through the program. Like recently I gave her an acronym and she laughed. And I think six months ago, if I gave her the acronym, which was Q-tip, quit taking it personally, she probably would have been very angry at me. You could tell somebody a thousand times something, let go, let God. And until they're ready to hear it, they're never going to hear it, if that makes sense. It makes total sense because I have experienced that myself. (laughs) I experienced that the first time that I know I heard Somebody tell me I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, I can't control it. I experience that frequently when I'm reading the literature and there's a sentence in there that was never there before. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. I wasn't ready for the message that sentence was giving me until I actually heard it that time. So, yeah, absolutely. 
So I know that when I wrote that, she was curled up on the bed and I was just, I was grateful that I remembered this time pants, a jacket, because ERs are freezing, and a charger for my phone. I was, uh-huh. I was like, okay, that's all I needed to bring. When she told me, I remember this time, we had just finished something. We were all together and we came back to my house. Like she likes to speak in accents. So she had a British accent. She's like, mother, I don't think I can keep myself safe. And I was like, oh. I'm like, okay. So then I called her dad. She packed the bag. He had to come down because I left my purse at his house. From where I am, he's about 20, 25 minutes away. He's up in the mountains. And so not super far away. Um, he has to come down the hill. We always talk about going up the hill or down the hill. And so he came and brought me my purse. And I said, there's no point of you coming. I said, at least one of us deserves to have a good night's sleep. So please go home. I will keep in touch with you. I'll let you know what goes on. So that's how we did it. When I wrote that, when I wrote that, it was like, okay, I, I got to go back to gratitude. I, I can be sad. I can be angry. When this journey started for us, it was in September. I don't think the pandemic has helped. She's a, she's a freshman at a high school. And so she, no social outlet really. And one friend, maybe another friend that lives out of state, but no real groups of people. And so it, it came down to how we found out that this was serious was our older daughter. She had to confide in her. This all started out with her getting an edible and taking it at her dad's house, our 14 year old daughter and having a bad trip Mm. and then calling her older sister who lives in an apartment in the house and then said, I need your help. My older daughter, my younger daughter dealing with that. I get the phone call on Saturday. She said, I don't want this to ruin your day, but this is what happened. Olivia or, you know, they got, she got a hold of an edible and she took it. She took way more than uh, and she got sick and I made her clean up her vomit. And I'm like, okay. I said, I appreciate that. I, I'm okay. I, so then my uh, ex and I confronted her and she knew she was going to get in trouble. The whole scenario was just, I mean, my older daughter and I have this agreement. I want our younger daughter to be able to confide and have somebody to go to other than her dad and I, and I want it to be her sister if she can be. And I basically said to her older sister, look, if you think it's a danger, if you think she's a danger to herself, a danger to others, um, or unsafe behavior, that's when I need to know. It would have been different if she was older, if she had all these things going on in her head. And I said, I agree that you did the right thing. What she did do is she made her sister tell us. She said, look, I love you. However, this is not healthy behavior. You need to tell mom and dad or I will. So she did. So she did. My younger daughter's like, I know you're going to be super disappointed. This is what I did and did it. And it was like, okay, at least she came out. So then my ex and I confronted her and I was already angry. Mm-hmm. I could feel it coming up. And I think I said, I, I don't even know how it transferred because we just were talking. And I basically looked at her and said, do you want to die? And she said, Yes. And I said, okay, fine. We're going to the ER. That's literally how it happened. I just, I had to go get changed. She started bawling. I was angry and my ex was consoling her. I kept thinking next right thing, next right thing. I was in a bathing suit. So I was like, okay, I need to get changed because I need to go. I'm going to be there and in the ER for a while. I know 
I feel like we've done this. So then we went and he went in with her the first time I stayed in the parking lot and we swapped. That's the first time we did this. We swapped okay, every couple hours. And finally, at one point, I basically just said, I told him, I said, just go home. I go, I can stay here with her. So then he came back the next morning. They still haven't found a place for her. The funny thing was, is I was in the ER all night. He came there at 630. I had to get home, get dressed, and then take my father back to the hospital for physical therapy because he had just had knee surgery. And so my father was one of the first family members to find out because I was so exhausted and he asked me something and I just lost it. (laughs) I just started crying. He's like, what happened? And I'm like, this is what happened. She's going in for a 5150. She's self-harming. She doesn't want to live. And that was the first time I actually, I think, really felt it in my heart, in my body that our 14-year-old daughter doesn't want to be around, doesn't want to live, doesn't want to be in this world. And it was so hard to grasp that. And it still is. It's still really hard to grasp that. It really is. I'm finding out that a lot more people in program are dealing with this. And again, not that I want to blame the pandemic, but you know, we could just say came along with it, the isolation and the, and the frustration and the not being able to socialize or be able to interact with kids and and have that outlet. And I, I do feel we are human beings. We do need the human touch and we do need the human spirit and thank God for zoom for our meetings. But I do feel like part of it was that kind of center over the edge. I do feel like she was struggling with depression for about four or five years, obviously, but it came to a head this year. And uh, I think that's true for a lot of people. Yeah. I, I know I have read stories that the incidence of depression, anxiety, and probably suicide have increased during the, during the pandemic. You didn't say here in the gratitude letter, and, and I'm sure that it was there is I have been grateful when my children reached out for help. Yeah. When they admitted that they were in a place that they couldn't do themselves. A very trivial example. I was awakened at probably three in the morning by a phone call from our son who said, I'm at this intersection. I don't know how to get home from here. Can you come get me? He had been at a friend's house. They had imbibed substances. I think mostly alcohol this time, but I don't know. And I didn't ask because we had told them that that thing that if you ever are somewhere and you need a ride because maybe you don't trust the person you got there with or whatever to be safe, call us. No questions. And so I drove out and this was like out on the west side of town, like a, a mile or two outside of town in, the, in, a, in a lonely intersection with a stoplight. And I picked him up and he said something like, what's my penalty going to be? And I said, let's talk about that in the morning when I'm awake and you're sober. And actually we didn't. I figured he had a consequence and he probably didn't need to be reminded he hadn't made the best decision. And but how, what a beautiful thing for him to be able to call you. Yeah. Have, yeah. Exactly. But yeah. Oh, 
You were already in Al-Anon at this point, I assume. I will be eight years new in January. I'm so excited about that. And I like to refer to myself as always being new so I don't get stagnant. <laughs> always learning, especially in this program. I'm learning more and more every year and I'm liking myself better more and more. So that makes it even better. You talked about being angry. Oh, yeah. Being angry at her actions, being angry at the situation. Can you unpack that a little bit? Oh, yes. I think it was both. Not I think. I know it was both. I know it was both in the sense of I kept thinking to myself, how bad is is your life that you really feel like you want to end it? That's all I, I kept thinking is how bad is this life? You have two parents that love you. You have two homes. You have a roof over your head. I could go on and on with that. So that was one of the first things. And then it came down to the other part, like you said, the situation. Like we have to go through this again. We dealt with this a little bit with our older daughter. And I'm like, again, we have to deal with this again. I just kept thinking, okay, this is part of the alcoholic family. This is part of the disease. And even though my ex-husband has found his sobriety and I'm grateful for that. And I had my own issues. I mean, we divorced. I'm 50% blamed for that marriage. It's not, even though there was alcoholism and I was crazy before I came into Al-Anon, I, I know how awful I was. So I do feel like this is all kind of part of it. And maybe not. I understand that there is chemistry in the brain that can help dopamines and serotonin levels and all that kind of stuff that can be triggered. But I do feel like this is part of it. So the minute I knew I was so angry, it was like, okay, I got to figure this out. So I was talking to certain people who had dealt with this. And one of my friends, she called me right. She goes, you're afraid. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's fear. Even though we have all those acronyms for fear, my favorite is face everything and recover. It was definitely, I am angry. I need to tap into this. And I talked to my sponsor. She gave me some steps, some things to do to work on the anger. Cause I'm like, I can't be angry. And my daughter called me out. We, we were dealing with family counseling when all the different treatment centers that she's been in. And, and currently she's in a residential treatment center about an hour and a half away from us living there with six other girls, but she was at different facilities and we would be able to go on once a week and we'd have family counseling. And she even said to me, she said, you were so angry with me when I told you, you were so angry. And I said, you're right. I go, you're absolutely right. I said, it was a defense mechanism. And I'm working on that because when I first came to these rooms, I was so angry. I was so angry. I just couldn't. And I hated being angry and I hated feeling that. So I told her, I said, it was the fear of losing you. It's the fear of being at your funeral, saying your eulogy. It's the fear. I don't want to bury you is what I kept saying. It, it, it's those fears that you try to keep out of your mind. But when it, you're dealing with your adolescent child, it's hard. It's truly hard to, at least for me, to be able to, and I try not to wallow in it. It's like a wave, right? It's you let them come in and then you let them go out. and you let them crash on the shore, then the wave goes out and then you bring something more positive in. I heard in a meeting, it's a season. It will change. 
And I just thought, oh, that is so brilliant. Uh, that just helped me so much to realize that, yeah, this is this too shall pass. I know, and her dad knows that. And it's funny because I've stopped saying it. I think I have. <laughs> okay, I can't quite remember, but happiness is an inside job. Yeah. I, I cannot do the work that she needs to do for herself. And she's learning this. She's learning this. She's learning that I, I pray for the stranger to come into her life. That's what one of my, my prayers have been is please let there be a stranger to come into her life to help her see that life is worth living. And there is so much joy and love and just amazement and awe in this thing we called life. And that this is just a small little glimpse, just a small little hiccup and it will pass. And it might seem huge to her right now because she is 14 and she is an adolescent and she is a girl and there's hormones and there's stuff going on, but it will pass after I think I really let myself feel my feelings and get out of there. I was able to tell her, I am so working on the anger. And I can't say it doesn't still come up because she's gone AWOL, meaning that she ran away from a voluntary facility, which I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) The first time she did that, I was like, really? But then the second time she's done that a couple of times, but this place where she's at right now, somebody there and sat her down and basically said, you better knock this off because if you don't, you are not going home. You're going to go to a complete lockdown facility with no privileges and you won't be there for 45 days. You'll be there for six months to a year. And she said, this person said this to me and I don't want that. I don't want that. I'm I'm ready to own my own and work on myself. And, and that's huge. That's huge for someone to, I mean, the first thing I kept thinking is it's the three A's acceptance, awareness, and action. And I kept saying, I'm like, oh my God. And I started crying because I'm like, okay, is I hope this is real. I do. Because she's like the in the letter of the alcohol, she has a hard time being truthful and honest with us. In fact, on Christmas Eve, we spoke to her and she basically told us that she self-harmed and she uh, had lost privileges. So she could only be on the phone for three minutes. I feel like it goes back to the analogy of the alcoholic, they feel bad enough about what they did. And so just getting angry and resentful that she hurt herself, isn't going to help the situation. All I can do is say, you know what? I really appreciate you being honest and it's not going to ruin my day. Cause she was concerned about that. I will say I did take that 10 minute pause uh-huh. before I went back into the Christmas Eve festivities I took that pause outside, say the serenity prayer, and then went in and still had a lovely afternoon. And then that night, let her sister know what happened and her dad knew also. And so we're both on the same page. There wasn't anything we can do. It's a choice. She made a conscious effort to hurt herself because she's sad because she couldn't be with family. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The other hard part of this is that she wanted to be there. She wanted to be in a residential treatment center for depression and anxiety and self-harm. And so the fact that she's run away twice, the second time I was like, I literally couldn't even do anything. I was literally paralyzed and we weren't going to go up and rescue her. And I couldn't talk to my ex. And it was like, okay, serenity prayer for me is saving grace in my program because I go like, 
I step one, two, three, I can't, he can't, I got to let him. I can't, he, he can't, I got to let him. And then if I still can, I can reason it out with somebody in fellowship. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to work a better program around this because yeah. I have tools now, which I didn't have before. So let's talk about some of those tools. You, you talked about the serenity prayer. That is a huge one. You talked about just having program friends, yes. having a place you can go. Because people have walked through this before me. And I, I know I'm not the only person that has dealt with this, whether their kids are in their 40s or you know even 50s now, and they've come out the other side. I know that there are people that I can call and be like, I'm all over the place. And they're like, yeah, you are. Guess what? Take a breath. (laughs) Okay. I'll take a breath. (laughs) When our kid who was in college at the time ended up in a locked treatment facility as a danger to self or others, there was fear. And I distinctly remember being at a meeting and just breaking down because it was a safe place to do that and and saying if this was a problem with alcohol or drugs i feel like i'd know what to do but with this psychosis or whatever's going on i don't know what to do and that was the night before i was getting on a plane to fly from michigan to arizona so that there would be somebody who could receive our child when they were released from the facility because They weren't going to let him out until there was somebody there. And there was fear, confusion. I'm sure I was angry, probably more at the situation, but also I'm sure there was some anger at at them as well. And I'm trying to think, okay, so I came in this program in 2002. Kid was a sophomore in college. So that would have been 2010 or 11. Okay, so I had eight or nine years of program at that point, And I am just immensely grateful that I had eight or nine years of program at that point. Because some of the things that I had learned about acceptance and loving detachment and not enabling, actually, I was able to use those when I went there to not try to fix my kids' problems because the kid had to fix their own problems. They were legally an adult, 20 years old. The college wouldn't let me fix their problems, but I could provide a place to live while they worked on their problems because one of their problems was that they had been barred from campus. And so, They couldn't live in their dorm room. I could provide food. I could provide transportation, none of which they were really able to do on their own. So that at the end of the week, I was there when the kid was readmitted to college, had found a friend to live with for the last few weeks of the semester in a very sketchy situation. This friend had a roommate who had disappeared a couple months ago and the friend said you can stay in this guy's room (laughs) yeah college kids that's how it works and i knew that i could say once i'm not happy that you're moving in with this kid who was one of your substance suppliers and then i had to let it go 
because I'm not the one who's there. I'm not the one who needs a place to live. This was the solution my kid found. He lived with this person for another year and then realized that it was not a good situation and, and moved out, that this friend was really too flaky. I guess I drove them to their first psych something, psychologist, psychiatrist, I don't know. The one who can prescribe drugs. Psychiatrist. Psychiatrist, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're right up there with that one right now, aren't you? I drove them to the first appointment, but then I was leaving town, so they had to figure it out themselves from then on. And after a few weeks, they decided to stop taking the antipsychotics, and we were not happy with that. I think it was my wife who asked, so what are you doing differently? To which the response was, I'm no longer listening to the voices in my head. And we had to accept that. And the kid has been, I would say, sane. Yeah. They keep doing things that we're like, what? But, (laughs) you know. Oh, yes. (laughs) Have not been back in a facility, have not needed a psychiatrist. Again, I don't know exactly what happened there, but they went through some kind of a break and needed help. Sometimes that's all we can do. Be there when support is needed. Provide the support that is asked for. And not try to fix it because, man, that is something that is just, like you said, it's an inside job. Absolutely. That's the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yeah. So. And I don't know about you. I remember sometimes as an adolescent when I was like, it's not worth it. But I never went past that thinking to action. Yeah. So just I, being an adolescent is hard. Yes. <laughs> totally agree with that. Yeah, I do. I almost feel like some of this came about not only with the pandemic and stuff, but I do feel like some of the triggers for her or the things that activated her are some things that were in social media. That's a whole nother can, <sighs> a whole nother can of worms, if you will. And I do feel like some of this is very, I feel like the mental aspect has become, it's just heightened with the age group. You know, I do. I feel like it's absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So coming back to your tools, what are your yeah. tools? I, I wrote tools, some ideas here, but yes. <laughs> I, you know what? It's pretty much, yeah, because of Zoom, I get to go to a meeting every single day if I want to. And I am so grateful for that. I haven't even been attending meetings in my own area. I've been attending meetings in other areas, but in my state, but in other areas. And that's just been a godsend. I've met people. I'm, I'm currently going to a lot of meetings in LA um, and New York because of the time my, where I'm at in my timing. And it's, oh, I can either go to New York because I can get up and at five and make a six o'clock meeting or, Oh, I don't have to get up that early. I can make the seven o'clock meeting in LA and it's a beautiful thing. And I can just listen. I don't have to speak. I don't have to share. I can just listen to learn. And, and also acknowledging, which I did it, it was Christmas Eve and I, I went to a meeting and I, I was acknowledging my sadness. I, I was sad. My baby girl's not here. I am blessed to have two grandsons, five and almost four. They definitely take the sting out of it because they're just way. They're. Just, I had two girls, and these are two boys, and boys are 
different than girls. And these guys are super, super energetic. So I always have to have my running shoes on when I'm around them. I was able to acknowledge though, that I'm sad and the tears came down and it was okay. I'm not going to stay in this wallowing (laughs) self-pity. It was good. I felt good about knowing that I can acknowledge, again, I go back to the metaphor of a wave because I like that because it basically, depending on how big or how small that wave is, can depend on your emotions and knowing that it's going to heighten and then you're going to release it and just let it go and still enjoy the day and accept everybody my family, who I was with on Christmas Eve, are, they're just doing the best they can. They're, everybody's just doing the best they can. And it was a letdown that my daughter self-harmed on Christmas Eve, but I, I was not affected by it because, again, I, I was affected. I was bummed. And God forbid, again, I don't want to lose my child. That's, I just, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's just bottom nothing, line. I, I, bottom line, don't want to lose my child. Again, though, I, I can't make her stop. I can give her the treatment and we can help her the best we can. But until she realizes, just like, in my opinion, like any addict or alcoholic, or they got to find their own way. They got to find their own recovery. They've got to find their own tools. And for me, I mean, it's program. It's everything. It's reading my readers. It's taking a walk or calling a program friend. It's all the things that they've said. And you know, I'm currently working the concepts, which I'm struggling working the concepts. So I've only actually worked the, the steps and the traditions once, but my sponsor works the steps, traditions, and concepts. So I'm following her lead, but I'm like wanting to force my program on myself and force my, you know, serenity. And that just doesn't happen. I had an epiphany the other day when I was making fudge. And I shared this one time in a meeting where it was like, okay, I was forcing everything in a small pot. Well, that doesn't work. And then I went to put the chocolate in. Anyways, the, it didn't set. So I was trying to force it in the freezer and I have a small freezer. And finally I realized, why are you doing this? You're trying to force solutions and you're being unreasonable. Just make a new batch. And so I had a good chuckle about that because <laughs> the reality is, is if fudge is not going to set, it's not going to set. It's not going to matter. <laughs> and I was just, you go, you can't for, and I just like, okay, that was like, like a God shot. That was a higher power laughing at me going, ah, ah, ah. yeah, you're going to have to remake that fudge and take a break for yourself and go listen. I And not to pat your back, but I listen to podcasts a lot. And I, <laughs> so I, I am so grateful for this because I can put a meeting on while I'm in the kitchen, while I'm at what in the car is my favorite. I plug it in and put a pot. It's a meeting in my pocket. And I'm just so grateful. Or if I'm at the grocery store and I don't feel like now we can't even smile at people because you're wearing a mask or whatever. So smile smile with your eyes. Yeah. (laughs) You got to smile with your eyes. And so it's okay. I'm just going to focus on my recovery. I'm going to listen to something and I'm going to get past what I need to get past. Again, having a meeting, I can go to a meeting pretty much any hour of the day with all the states and the countries in the world, there's a meeting going on sometime. I love the Zoom for a certain reason. And that would be my only reason I really love the Zoom meetings. I had a a pie crust incident on Christmas Eve. (laughs) Our daughter converted to conservative Judaism, not Orthodox, but she tries to eat kosher more or less. And so we try to not mix milk and meat, for example, in the same meal. So I had this challenge to make a pecan pie with no butter because butter is milk. 
Yeah. And she said, we could have an interval between the meal and the dessert, and then there would be two separate meals and it would be okay. But I thought, I'm going to try this thing. So I got some vegan butter and I got out my favorite pie crust recipe and I started making it and the vegan butter was not acting like regular butter. And I thought, we'll just try it. We'll force it. So I managed to roll out this vegan butter pie crust dough and put it in the pie pan and stuck it in the the fridge to solidify again, because that's what the recipe says. And and I had a few pieces left over. I like to make crust cookies. They're yummy. So I stuck those on a pan in the oven. And after 10 minutes, I pulled it out and they had just melted into piles of goo. I was like, this is not going to (laughs) work. This is not going to make a crust. (laughs) Oh, I went and got a, a mass market crust out of the freezer. My wife is on the board of a, a nonprofit and they do bake sales. And, and so she had a pile of, of pie crusts from that, from, I don't know, Gordon food service or some, one of those places, Cisco or something that she was going to buy from them because it was clear they weren't going to be doing any bake sales for a while. So we have all these pie crusts in the freezer. So I went in and got one of those and made the pie with that. And it wasn't as good as the homemade crust, but it also still had no dairy in it. So it worked. And that is like acceptance of what is. Okay, that didn't work. Just like you and your fudge. I've got to make it just make another batch. In this case, I elected not to make another crust (laughs) with, I don't know what, I have vegetarian shortening with coconut and palm oil might have worked. But I wasn't going to do that again. (laughs) I wasn't quite doing the same thing and expecting a different (laughs) result. I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to something I know works. It's not the ideal. But the whole point of the pie is really the filling, not the crust anyway. But yeah, we just have those things. And sometimes I don't even think about I'm using a program tool here, but I know I am. And when our kids make decisions that we're like, what? Or what? (laughs) As you said, (laughs) I can't. My children are 30 now. I'm not going to change them. And if I persist in trying to force my solutions on them, all that does is push us apart. I think Eric said this last week. The only direction I can push somebody is away. And that's, that's one thing we keep telling our daughter is that we're not going anywhere. We are here. We're here for the long haul. We are not going anywhere. So don't think you're doing this alone. And and that was actually one of the things that she brought up in our counseling session was I have to do this on my own. And I said, as much as you have to find your tools, I go, my fear is that you have to realize that there are five other girls in this house that are struggling the same way you are. I said, I can't do my program alone. Her counselor knows that both her dad and I are in part of a 12-step program. And I said, I can't do my program by myself. I, I, I know that. It is not something that, you know, I, I would never try to tackle right. the steps or I got to have support. So I wanted to make sure that she understood that and that whether it's finding the support that works for you, we'll do what we can. But she knows that the hard work is hers to do. We can't do it for her. But That's at the okay. same time, and I get letters or people say in a meeting, but it's my child. It's my child and I'm responsible for him or her. You're telling me I can't fix things for them. You're telling me I have to let them find their own path. I have to let them 
want recovery before they'll find recovery. I don't know that I can do that with my child. I'm supposed to protect my child. I'm supposed to raise my child. How do you do that? I I think, I know we are responsible medically, financially for her, and we are doing everything we can in that regards. So she's in a treatment facility. We will never, and even when she gets out of the facility, if she ever says, I don't feel safe, we will never call bluff on that. That's something we just, it's keeping yourself safe. Okay. So you can't keep yourself safe. Okay. So we go to the ER. That's just something we do. That's what we have to do when my ex and I, I, I find that we're doing everything we possibly can for her. One of the things we talk about when we're in counseling is her honesty and obviously safety. The reality is we're not going to be able to watch her 24 seven when she does come home, unless we hire a babysitter or something. And she's mortified by that. If that's what we have to do, we have to do that. She understands. I'm like, you are an adolescent. You are not 18. And until you're 18, this is what we are obligated to do is to keep you safe. For me, it's really trying to work my program around those parameters. I have to keep her safe. I have to do what I can do. But again, it comes also down to, I know I can't do it. I can only do it to the best of my ability. It's not going to be perfect. And I don't try it for it to be perfect because it's practice, not perfection. And I know we're talking about a life and we're talking about self-harm and potential suicide. Again, I know she has a higher power and she has to find it. I, I can't create that for her. She has to find that will and that drive to want to move past all the stuff that's going on with her. So I just can only give her, like, I can only give her what I know as far as this too shall pass and think of it as a wave and try to have happier thoughts versus negative thoughts and find the tools that are work for her just help her. And that's where she's at. She's at a place where that's what they do. They try to help find the, take the self-harm out. And it, and it's rigid if she, she self-harms. So she lost privileges. She's back to, to, they have phases in the house and I haven't understand the phases, but she hasn't gotten to phase one yet. And I don't know if this is self-sabotage or not. And it's something her dad and I talk about a lot that, you know, if she does self-sabotage and I brought that up to before that's on her. If she ends up in a complete lockdown facility, we didn't, we didn't cause it. We can't cure it. We can't control it. We can contribute, but we're contributing, I think, in a, in a positive way. Not always. And she calls us out on that. And I, I love it. I love it when she calls me out on, on something. And I'm like, I totally get it. You know? I, I'm like, I appreciate it. I do understand that anxiety over it's my baby, it's my baby, it's my baby. And I think it goes also back to the whole the three C's with alcoholism or addiction, we can only do so much for a kid and any addict or alcoholic, they're going to find their drug or their bottle, however they want. We, we can't stop them. We can only do as a parent so much. I just find that this program has helped me you know, realize that if God forbid, I do lose my daughter when she turns 18 or something and I'll be devastated, but I know that I'm doing the best I can today. And I don't try to future trip. I don't try to look in great saying you have one, I, I think it was maybe from your podcast, you have one foot in yesterday, one foot in tomorrow, and then you're peeing on today. <laughs> and I just thought, oh my God, that is so great. And I'm like, yeah, I got to just stay in my hula hoop. I can only focus on the here and now. And that's what 
I do the best I can to do that. So that's where program, that's where meetings come in. When I start spinning, get to a meeting, yeah. get to a meeting, get yeah. to a meeting or call your sponsor, call a program friend, just do something different. And as you said, it is now possible to find a meeting any time of day. Absolutely. There's now a huge list on the, the Al-Anon website of Zoom meetings and other electronic meetings. Yes. And I I haven't recently felt the need of a meeting at three in the morning, but I'm sure if I did, <laughs> I'd find one in New Zealand or Australia or something. And, and, and I could just show up. One of the things that, that I thought of as you were talking about what you can do is that knowing the difference, finding the boundary between what you can do and what is not yours to do, finding the difference between what I can do and what is not mine to do. It's not always obvious. It's not always clear. Right. And it probably varies with the situation as well. Absolutely. 100%. Has working your program of recovery, has that helped you to be able to discern that difference? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know. Yeah. Because she's an adolescent, we have to do the next right thing to keep her safe, which even if she was an adult, I think I'd be still calling if she wasn't willing to go to a facility or whatever. And I knew she was going to self-harm. I absolutely would call 911 or whoever I had to call to get her to, because I know she's at, at that risk or in that sense, but because she's an ad, I mean, my ex and I both have, which he said that more to her is look, I've got four years to help you. That's it. We can only do so much when you're an adult. So like you said, your kids are an adult and you can't help them. You can help them, but you can't be as involved. And it has to do with them being an adult. (laughs) When my kid was in this facility in Arizona, we had to get some kind of a code from them for us to even be able to call. And it was really tricky figuring out how to get the code when we couldn't call. (laughs) tell them to give us the code. The code, yeah. I think we worked that through the counselor at the university who could get the code and then transmit it to us or something. But that was, it's like, there are these, the systems in place to protect our privacy around our our medical records. And those are good things, but sometimes they make our lives a lot harder. It can be, especially for parents who are dealing with older kids that are dealing with this. That's one of the things I am grateful for is that she is 14 and that we can we are in contact with her, you know, psychiatrist, her counselor, the people at the facility where, you know, she's at and her pediatrician, if you will. But I also know that there's a, only, so, I mean, like she has rules at this facility and I know my ex tries to force his will <laughs> on certain things and I, I let him do it. He's like, I'm going to call them. I'm going to try to fit my, okay. And in my mind, I'm like, there's rules in place for a reason and they don't waffle by them. I guess certain things like in, in the packing list, there was something about, oh, no pillows or blankets or stuffed animals. She's had a blankie since she was a baby and she doesn't sleep without it. And they said, oh yeah, we can make it. That's fine. There's just, they don't want 12 stuffed animals and that kind of, I'm like, I can understand that, but we're talking about a blankie. That's how she sleeps. And he had to, my ex had to do a lot more of the footwork because he's the um, policy holder. Uh. 
I do. And I've said to him, you know, I really appreciate all the hard work and effort and time and energy you have spent on this because I know I can't do it. I mean, this literally, I cannot do any of this because you're the policyholder, but I appreciate you going the extra mile. And I know he appreciated that. And uh, and we try to, he's, can you send an email? And can I, yes, we try to balance out our duties, but obviously most of the phone calls go to him because he's the policyholder. But with, uh, with the program and with boundaries and knowing that, okay, the doctors are just doing, you know, what they can to help her. Like certain things were like certain facilities were just like a holding pattern until she could get into a residential treatment. And we were never happy with those places because unfortunately our daughter was very, she was very malleable. She definitely took on other people's personalities and you don't always find healthy people in these facilities. <laughs> Go so figure. It was, yeah. So, and even, and my, my ex-husband, he found his sobriety and he's been in recovery treatment. So he's, I know what these places are like. I've been there. I know. And I'm like, okay, speak for what you know, but also let her know that what you need to do. So it's also navigating with him. Don't say this. Try not to say it so often that you know, happiness is an inside job. I've stopped saying that. I know I've stopped saying that. When I heard her finally it felt genuine to hear the acceptance. I was like, oh my God, she's doing step one, two, and three. I was just, that's what popped into my head. I'm like, yay, Yay. (laughs) it's a win, it's a win. But if I didn't have any of these tools, I I would just be going crazy. I know I would, I don't even know. I have um, three older sisters, I'm the youngest, and they are all a year apart. So I am nine, eight, and seven years younger than my sisters. And my family is, and my father understands this. My family is the hardware store. I do not go to the hardware store for bread. And, and by default, one of my sisters had to know because my ex was like, I am not comfortable lying. And I was like, we don't have to lie. We can just bend the truth. Because right? I just, it was too personal and the questions. And I'm like, okay, fine. I said, fine, I'll come out there. And I finally ended up having to tell the other two sisters anyways. And, and that's, it was really you, hard you, for me you to tell one they're going to, you know, and that was, it was, yeah, it was the game of telephone. And I was very specific. Look, this isn't a topic that I'm not, I, if you have questions, you can come to me and ask. And they have finally, and I'm definitely a lot more gentler with them because they're coming from a loving place. And I tend to put up a wall with them, but with knowing what we've dealt with, with hospitals and different places. And I just keep saying to myself, these people are doing the best they can. And uh, even though not every facility has been fabulous and what we're talking about mental health facilities, and these are all adolescents, everyone's doing the best they can. And if they can't, they're going to find a place for her that's going to work for her. So I, I don't know if I even covered all the the question. We're doing great here. And I know <laughs> that the conversation goes where, where you take it. I do um, want to ask how using, maybe using program, using your recovery tools with somebody who has mental illness is similar to and or different from using them with an alcoholic or an addict in your experience. And I understand that between your experiences, at least as far as I understand, you were, you had an adult alcoholic you were living with, and now you have an adolescent person with mental illness. And so there's two differences and it may not be possible to oh. de- detangle those two sets of differences. <laughs> Correct. No, but I can totally, it's funny because 
When I was reading, so in one of the meetings that I attend, they they read the letter, the open letter from the alcoholic and in the beginning. And it was one of those things that it was like, when I was hearing it, it was, don't believe everything I tell you. It may be a lie. Denial of reality is a symptom of my illness. I was like, huh, that's my daughter. She wasn't being honest with herself. And yet, and she was telling everybody, including her therapists, what they wanted to hear. So nothing was coming. And then it was like, how are you being on it? It was really hard for me to break that barrier of, are you being honest? How can I, I just don't even know if you're being honest. So now she realizes that if she's not honest, like I'm grateful that she called and said, I self-harmed. And in the, in that one sense that yes, that is honest. She's like, I'm working on being honest. And I, I don't think those words came out. And with the alcoholic, I just feel like when, you know, and it was my ex-husband and when he just was so, he was just beaten down and it, you know, they're already, it's like the same thing. If you assume my responsibilities, you make my failure to assume them permanent. My sense of guilt will be increased and you will feel resentful. It's like, they, they don't set out to drink I'm going to wake up this morning and I'm going to drink myself into oblivion. And with my daughter and the mental illness, I don't think she has all that control. I think it's a matter of changing the story and, or the song or whatever in her head to be positive. It's changing the perspective. So she sees a brighter light versus the doom and gloom. So I feel like there was a lot of similarities. Again, I don't think I would have been able to get through this part two, granted, we were dealing with some of this with my older daughter, if it wasn't for program, because I do see some similarities for me to be able to have the boundaries. And again, because she's an adolescent, guess what mom and dad says goes. If she comes home and we have to hire a babysitter, because both her dad and I work and it's not, it's not like I I can't work from home and, and neither can he. So it's, it's one of those things where we will do what we have to do in order to make it right and to make her safe. And with an adult person or with somebody that's an adult of an an addict or an alcoholic, it's one of those things of having the boundaries of, okay, how can I be safe or how can I keep my family safe if this isn't a safe environment for them to be in with the alcoholic, if that makes sense. Yeah, makes absolute sense. I'm going to end with my question that I try to end with, which is what would you or what do you say? What might you say to somebody else who is in a similar place, who is struggling with a similar problem? Oh. You encounter them in a meeting and they're like, oh my God, it's horrible. What do you say? Keep coming back. (laughs) (laughs) There are people, I mean, get numbers, get, get a phone list going for you, reach out. There are people who have walked through probably every scenario that's out there in our rooms. And there there are those among us who have walked through the other side. I, I definitely say keep coming back, work a program. You will find people that are dealing with what you're dealing with, whether it's adolescence and mental illness and, or suicide. And it's reaching out and reasoning it out with somebody else and seeing how they did their how they walked through their stuff and how could you take what you like and leave the rest from their, their, their perspective. That's what I love about this is being able to find people who have walked through this and come out the other side and they are, they're thriving. Which is 
certainly what I found when I came into the program. Absolutely. There were people who have dealt with that alcoholism in the family and they're thriving. And how the hell did that happen? But right? it gave me hope. It gave me yep. hope. And there is hope. I, there's always hope. I don't know who said it, but in, in the darkest of the night, the brightest stars shine. Yep. So if you're dark, just think about those stars. They are definitely out there. You just, there is hope. And you just have to find that light because it will reignite you. You picked some songs? I did. I and did. What do we, what do we have here? Okay, so the one that I absolutely love, it's an oldie, (laughs) not quite sure how old. It's by Nina Simone, and it's called Feeling Good. And if you've never heard her, I highly recommend you listen to it because she's got this beautiful, sultry voice. And some of the lyrics, birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for me. And then one of the other lyrics is dragonfly out in the sun. You know what I mean, don't you know? Butterflies all having fun. You know what I mean? Sleep in peace when the day is done. That's what I mean. It's the, this old world is a new world and a bold world for me. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good. I love that song. Yeah. (laughs) I I could hear it in my head. I know. I know. I wish I could sound like her. I would have sung it. (laughs) Oh, man. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? And since you've been talking a lot, I'm going to talk a little bit here. I've been working, studying the steps, working the steps with a small group for over three years now, I think we've been meeting. Um, We were meeting every other week regularly at a a meeting room in a local library until COVID. And, And then we stopped meeting for a while and then we figured out that we could Zoom. But because everybody's life is upended, We've been pretty slow continuing the step work because sometimes when we meet, we just do the check-in and then we're done with the hour. So we're finally almost done with step 12. And this week we got to one of the questions out of the book, Paths to Recovery for step 12. Not quite the last one, but the question is, in what areas of my life do I need to start practicing these principles? What can I do this week to make a beginning? And when I got to that question, I was like, aren't I working the principles in all areas of my life after all this time in the program? No, of course not. (laughs) It is a program of progress, not a program of perfection. I had to think about it for a minute or two. And what I thought was there are at least two, and probably more if I spent a little time, Difficult people in my life. And by difficult people, I mean people that I have difficulty connecting with. One at work and one in my family. And I am not using the principles of this program as well as I could be in my interactions with these people. That when I enter into an interaction with one of these people, 
whether it's a phone call, a meeting, a Zoom call, whatever, I tense up. I kind of, the, the word that I found when I was actually talking about this in a meeting yesterday is hypervigilance. And maybe it's not exactly hyper, but it's definitely vigilance. Like, I am ready for this person to push one of my buttons. Which means that I have armed the buttons. The buttons are ready to be pushed. So it's more likely that the button is going to get pushed. And then I have to not react or try not to react. I have tools. I have tools for disconnecting buttons that I have used in many circumstances throughout the years that I learned here. So I'm going to step seven, ask for help, because it's not something I can do on my own. I think, and this sounds really weird in a work context, but say a little prayer before going into the meeting. God, let me be accepting of what this person has to say and how they say it. Help me to not react. Something like that. Yeah. But like I said, when I first saw that question, I was like, nowhere. There's nowhere I need to use these principles. I'm already using them. I'm not. And the, the honesty that I learned doing steps four and five, doing steps eight and nine, means that it's a lot harder for me to fool myself now. So that was my, my, my sort of recovery aha this week. Also using, as has been the case all year, acceptance. This too shall pass. This, is, this was not a normal Christmas holiday for the family. We, our, our daughter is in town. We're potted with her. So she comes over. She came over Christmas morning. Even though she's practicing Judaism, she also will celebrate Christmas with the family because it's the family thing. And she did that for the first however many years of her life before she converted as well. So she came over and about 10 o'clock, I opened up a Zoom meeting, which I had sent out a link to the other members of the family. And our other kid who's in New Hampshire called in and my brother and sister called in and we did some presents. I was able to open the things my brother sent and say, yeah, here's this CD that you ordered for us. From. <laughs> he moved back to be with my parents from Long He spent 30 years or something in Long Beach, California. So he has a lot of friends in the LA area. He's a, a poet. So he has a lot of friends in the creative community and he doesn't have a lot of money because he's a poet. Um, <laughs> he sent us CDs from a couple of friends of his from Long Beach, but, and, obviously put thought into it. And so I was able to say, here it is, you know, on the Zoom. And it wasn't, we weren't sitting in the same room together. We weren't breathing the same air, but we were able to be to, as much together as we can be. And that part of my family is actually celebrating Christmas on New Year's Day because of my sister's schedule. I don't know what Exactly. So we'll get to do that again on New Year's Day and, and they can open the presents that we sent. Hopefully I'll be able to see my parents also in that call and the place where I'm also, and I think I talked about this before, but I'm practicing acceptance is my father is in hospice care in their home. No idea how long um, it's going to be for him. 
but apparently he did a little better this week and we'll take that. He was able to get up and eat a little bit and spend a little time out of bed. Um, They have a hospital bed set up in the living room, which is where he is almost all the time now. So I hope to be able to see him on a screen at least. Because, yeah, enough said on that. Uh, it's hard, it's hard, it, but it's also in the, our Christmas Eve church service, which was on YouTube, they had the choir, they, they had the choir sing a song and they had people's faces in little ovals that were floating on the screen. That must have been just a lot of work because each person had to sing it individually and somebody had to put it together. But they had the choir, the children's choir and the handbell choir all together. And I'm probably going to break up on this because I did. The song they were singing is Dona Nobis Pachem, Give Us Peace. And what I remembered was that when I was young, we used to camp out on some property that, that we owned. We'd camp out all summer. And my mother would sing lullabies to us as we were going to sleep in the tent. And that was one of them, you know, and she can't do that anymore, but I still have that memory and I can feel that. And that's a gift to be able to feel that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I didn't know I was going to go that deep. (laughs) That's beautiful. It truly is. So aside from the thing we spent, the last hour and some talking about how's recovery working in your life these days? It's like I mentioned before, going to a meeting almost every day and not getting down on myself if I'm not. Right. <laughs> being being gentle with myself to be like, okay, you got tomorrow. and But definitely listening. And I take notes on my phone when I'm in meetings. It's just the little pearls of wisdom of people all over knowing that we are in this room and we have a, just a commonality of we're friends and families of alcoholics and we all want the same thing. We all want that serenity and the peace and to work or most of us, maybe not we all, but most of us, I know I do want to want serenity in my life. And I found it in these rooms and I'm just so grateful that I get to be a part of this fellowship. And so the recovery is, I, I think definitely I can feel my recovery stronger, especially when I know I'm spinning out of control and it's okay, stop spinning, make a phone call or stop spinning, read some literature, stop spinning. Or if I'm angry, I clean. That's my (laughs) go-to when I'm mad, I clean. So that, that has been a good thing. (laughs) So uh, other than that, I, I'm just so grateful. It's one day at a time. I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about next on the show. I have a whole bunch of topics people have asked for and some topics that people have said, I'd like to do this with you. And then it's a matter of scheduling like we did. But one that has come up recently is somebody wrote a letter a a few weeks ago about that word qualifier that sometimes shows up in our, in our language and that she did not like the use of that word. So it brought up the question and, and, Somebody who's been on the show before said, hey, we could talk about this question, what qualifies you for Al-Anon? And how has that answer changed for you? That's a great one, yeah. So that's an upcoming topic. I don't know exactly when, but if you'd like to contribute your thoughts, 
You can leave a voicemail, send us an email. If you have other feedback or questions as well. And Roberta, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions about today's topic of adolescence with depression and self-harming or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about, let us know. And you can find out more information about the show at our website, which is therecovery.show. We have notes for each episode, and those can be found at therecovery.show slash the number of the episode, so 348 for this one. We have links to the books or pamphlets or whatever that we read from. So if you want to order that book from Al-Anon or that pamphlet, you can go there and do that. And I know that Al-Anon World Service is still struggling financially this year. Donations are way down. Literature sales are apparently up. And yeah, they'll they'll ship them to you. If you don't have a physical meeting, you can go to buy them anymore, which many of us don't anymore. We also have the videos for the music that Roberta chose, and you can go there. And so let's talk about the second song you picked. Great. It is by Rachel Platten, and it's called Fight Song. And I think the first time I heard this song, I thought, oh, my God, she's got to be in recovery. The first section of lyrics, it's like a small boat on the ocean, sending big waves into motion. Like how a single word can make a heart open. I might only have one match, but I can make an explosion. And then the the chorus goes, this is my fight song. Take back my life song. Prove I'm all right song. My power's turned on. Starting right now, I'll be strong. I'll play my fight song. And I don't really care if nobody else believes because I've still got a lot of fight left in me. Working my way through the backlog of emails, the ones that I'm sharing today are probably more recent than some if you sent an email or a voicemail and I haven't responded to it here. Be assured that I have not forgotten you. I'm just doing what I can during this time. Kara responded to a question that another listener asked. She writes, Hi, Spencer. I hope you are enjoying the start to your holiday season in this strange year. I just listened to episode 347, and toward the end, someone asked about managing food in recovery, and specifically had mentioned addiction to sugar, and they didn't want to seem dramatic by saying that. I'm not sure if this is appropriate or a practice of this show to recommend other 12-step programs, but there is a program for that. I've been a member of Overeaters Anonymous for 12 years, and it helps with exactly the things that person wrote in about. In OA, the belief is that, similar to alcohol, sugar and other substances can truly be addictive for some people. So, not dramatic at all of the original question asker to say that. It's not one size fits all, so not everyone struggles with sugar or overeating. We also struggle with forms of binging, anorexia, bulimia, restriction, etc., 
The recommendation is to attend six different meetings to see if OA resonates with you. If you're allowed to mention other programs on your show, maybe some folks would find this helpful if they weren't already aware of the program. OA.org is the website and has a meeting locator. I'm pretty sure all the U.S.-based meetings are over Zoom right now. It has changed my life. Thank you so much for your service and putting on and maintaining this podcast. Happy holidays, Kara. And Kara, yeah, this is not an Al-Anon meeting. We do sometimes talk about other recovery programs. I will make sure to put a link to the OA.org website in the show notes at the recovery.show slash 348. But also OA.org is pretty easy to type into your browser. So thanks for that recommendation, Kara. I had thought of that, but I have no personal experience, so I didn't really want to talk about it. Colleen wrote in response to It's Not Your Fault, episode 339. Dear Spencer, I've been listening to your podcast since September 2020. I have a nearly two-year-old daughter who needs help settling to sleep each night. This means I can't get to most evening meetings. I knew as I was working through the steps with my sponsor that I needed more recovery than one meeting a week. I decided to change the things I could. After a long time feeling like I really wanted to change the things I couldn't, my daughter's sleep pattern, I did a quick podcast search on my phone and discovered your show. I started listening to the episodes on my phone while driving connected to my car sound system. Now I love getting into my car to see which topic comes up next. The system seems to shuffle them at random, so I wait to see what my higher power has in mind for me each time. I have been moved to email you after listening to the episode called It's Not Your Fault. This was actually the first one I ever listened to, but I didn't listen to the whole thing at once. And today it came back up on shuffle and I listened to the rest of it. I was moved to tears by a member's share about how much pain and hurting she could see in her alcoholic loved one, which was very relevant for me at the moment. You also read an email in that episode which asked for member shares who had left Al-Anon and come back. I have found so much identification and have wanted to email many times, but this is the one that I really strongly felt I should share on. I first discovered meetings when I was only 21. It was 2008. I was closer in age to the Alateen members than to most of the Al-Anon members who I met. But my life and my head were in a total mess and I needed the spiritual medicine and emotional direction that I found in those meetings, so I stayed. I stayed in the meetings for around six years. I rebuilt my relationship with my dad, who was my main qualifier. His phone calls and texts didn't feel like unexploded bombs anymore, waiting to go off, wondering if he would be drunk or sober. I could take the time that I needed for me to be true to myself in meetings and in my daily life, and that allowed me to be gentler with him. But the main thing that improved for me in those first six years was my relationship with my mom. She was an untreated Al-Anon. My relationship with her was much more complicated than that with my dad, but thanks to the medicine of this program, our bond healed. In 2013, I moved from where I lived in the north of England to near London in the south because of my then-boyfriend, now-husband's, job. Where we moved to was much closer to my mom, and I truly believe to this day that my higher power wanted me to move for that very reason. In 2014, my mom was diagnosed with inoperable cancer. The reason I stopped going to meetings is complicated. Before my mom was ill, I would go to meetings in London every weekend. When she became ill, I didn't have the physical time or headspace to get to those meetings anymore. I went to a different meeting that was much closer to home, but it was a very uncomfortable meeting, and I was the subject of gossip there. In my mind, that meeting did not follow any of the Al-Anon suggestions. I stopped attending after returning to one more meeting to tell them my disappointment at how a share of mine had been repeated. I've discovered recently that it has closed. It was unfortunately the only meeting that I could get to at that time, so I ceased membership. I really struggled to get my head around the events with my mom. 
I was holding her hand when she found out that she had only weeks to live. She told me I was still her best friend. She passed away in January 2016, and for a long time I couldn't forgive my higher power for the pain I was feeling. I then became ill myself, so still couldn't get back to meetings. I thank my lucky stars that in 2019, somebody who I had met earlier in my Al-Anon career contacted me to tell me he was setting up a new meeting. I was at a personal low point in my relationship with my dad. I had a nine-month-old daughter, and honestly, I was struggling with things at home. My husband and I have a great relationship, but there were things that were coming up that I really needed help with. I started attending again in September 2019, and I have tried to get to a meeting at least once a week ever since. I asked somebody to be my sponsor who was actually in my first ever meeting in the north of England after she added me as a friend on Facebook. She said she would be my sponsor for as long as I needed. I think both of us imagined she would be a temporary sponsor until I found somebody closer to home. As it turned out in 2020, it didn't matter whether she was closer to home or not, as we now have virtual connections in the way that had never been possible before. She is still my sponsor and is helping me work through my step four. My dad is going through his own personal difficulties at the moment. He is extremely ill, but will not see help from the doctor. And it is a massive proof to me that this is a disease physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. I am working through my own feelings about it with my sponsor. And the reading in one of the Al-Anon books that says we should not cause a crisis or prevent one is the thing that is getting me through at the moment. Coming back to meetings has given me more gratitude than I could ever have hoped for and shown me I truly have everything I need. There are as many ways to work the program as there are members. I now go to a meeting on a Saturday morning at 9 a.m., which at the beginning of my time in Al-Anon I could never have conceived getting to. I thank God every day for how my relationship with my mom improved, for my husband and my wonderful daughter in my life, for my dad, and for the recovery and wisdom I hear in meetings and now in your podcast. I've heard you talk before about how people enjoy listening to your voice. My daughter is more settled in the car when we listen to your voice than at any other time. So I have that to be grateful for as well. So I wanted to say that it is very possible to have a successful return to Al-Anon after a break. I had what felt like the most painful break possible in my personal events of 2014 to 2016. But my higher power made sure I got here right on time the first time and right on time the second. Thank you for your wonderful podcast. You do an amazing service with love and fellowship, Colleen. Thank you for writing, Colleen. I am glad to hear that you are back in the program and working it well, sounds like. So much gratitude. Kate writes about being pregnant while married to an alcoholic. Hi, Spencer. A few weeks ago, a listener wrote or called in with a request wanting to hear from other people who are pregnant with the father of the baby being an alcoholic. When I heard the listener's request, I thought to myself, wow, that sounds hard. I don't know if I could do that. Then, after a short reflection, I realized, wow, that is hard, and I have done that. I have three children with my alcoholic husband. I think the reason I didn't identify with the listener at first was because of my denial of my own situation. I have had other similar experiences since entering the program, but also because I didn't realize my husband was suffering from the disease of alcoholism when I was pregnant with our children. As I come to learn more about the disease of alcoholism and as the veil of denial is lifted on parts of my own lived experience, I have come to believe that I didn't need to know at the time that my husband was an alcoholic to have had the experience of being pregnant while married to an alcoholic. As I've learned more of my husband's story, I've come to believe that while I was pregnant and mothering young children, my husband was exhibiting symptoms of alcoholism and I was exhibiting symptoms of codependency. 
In hindsight, I'm thankful that my denial protected me from knowing I was mothering children with an alcoholic while I was pregnant and while they were very young. But as I've learned over and over again in this program, denial of my situation at the time did not protect me from the fears and emotions that I imagined I might have experienced had I known my husband was an alcoholic when I was pregnant. My husband first decided he was an alcoholic when my youngest child was two years old. When I first entered the program, I had to face the overwhelming fear that my children would grow up to be alcoholics or addicts. I remembered feeling alone and wishing he would take a more active role in my pregnancy. And sometimes I wished I had never had children with this man in the first place. These are feelings and memories that I could not have accessed or worked through without the support of a loving sponsor and a program. Now my children are ages 14, 13, and 9. Many times I still experience the fear that my children will become addicts or alcoholics. Hearing other members in Al-Anon speak about their alcoholic or addicted children can activate these fears in me, and sometimes me and my imagination can activate them all on my own. I'm so thankful that my program and my higher power showed me a path to a more serene life where I let my husband be the kind of father he wants to be, where I can try to be the kind of mother I want to be, and my children will hopefully feel free and supported to grow into the types of adults they want to be, all in spite of being raised in a household in the disease of alcoholism. Best, Kate. Thank you, Kate, and I love your closing. I feel like I to some extent, was able to do that for my children, who were 11 at the time I entered this program. I know they've been affected. I can see that in them sometimes. But they also know that they are supported and loved in being whoever they want to be and whatever journey they want to take. Barbara has a couple of topic ideas. Hi, Spencer. I'm a loyal listener to the podcast out here in Orange County. Small world. I actually grew up in Ann Arbor, which, side note from Spencer, that's where I currently live. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to episodes when I can't sleep. It helps stop the hamster wheel in my brain long enough for my exhausted body and my higher power to take over. I've listened on repeat to your latest podcast. If I am not the problem, there is no solution. So many good nuggets in there. The idea of replacing what if with even if has been a lifesaver many times in the week or so I have known this expression. I've shared this episode with all my Al-Anon friends. A couple of topic suggestions here. You define enabling as doing something that someone can do for themselves. This gets so tricky when there's an alcoholic parent and kids involved. I've listened several times to your episode on how to talk to kids about alcoholics and also about co-parenting with an alcoholic, but I think there could be another episode about navigating boundaries and enabling with an alcoholic spouse, ex-spouse when kids are involved. How do you set boundaries for your kids? Should you? What is an appropriate level of involvement in enforcing your kids' boundaries? How do you both keep them safe while allowing the alcoholic the dignity to fail? Maybe losing his or her kids' respect or trust is the very thing they need to seek recovery. What if that failure exposes your kids to something you don't want them to see, something they aren't old enough to handle? These situations are so complicated and have so many nuances. The age of the kids matter. Whether the parents are still married matters. The alcoholic's willingness to realistically look at their disease matters. My personal situation is unique, too. My qualifier is my husband, and we used to have split custody of his two kids with his ex-wife. They spent every weekend with us. Because of some alcoholic episodes, the kids have stopped coming here. I am in program and working it as best I can, but their mom is not, which means none of it is trickling down to the kids. I wish I could help them. They are so angry, and it has been nine months since they have spent time with their dad. 
I know some alatine could help them, but as the program says, this is out of my control. Attraction rather than promotion. I continue to work my program and ache at the pain experienced by all parties. Simultaneously feel terrible for my husband that he has lost custody of his kids and that maybe this is the right thing given he is still actively drinking. Either way, I wish I could help the kids feel better as Elanon has helped me feel better. Many have similarly complicated situations where we want to protect the kids, set them up for success with both their alcoholic parent and for their life, but we don't want to work hard at maintaining the alcoholic parent's relationship with his or her kids for them. That is squarely outside our hulu. If the alcoholic parent can't put in the work required to maintain the relationship, perhaps they shouldn't have one right now. Sadly, the other parent often ends up being blamed by the alcoholic, even if there are great intentions. Another topic idea, isms. Boy, the longer I have been in program, the more I feel recovery is squarely different from sobriety. Isms are a challenge whether the alcoholic is drinking or not, and can even be a problem if they are attempting recovery. I feel 12-step programs encourage you to pause, think, ask for help, run things by a sponsor, wait for more to be revealed, or to pray about your problems before taking action. My husband, who has had various sober stints, runs recklessly into so many situations and I still get caught up in his drama, whether he is drinking or not. How can we encourage the sobriety while suggesting recovery? How can we deal with our ex-partner's isms, narcissism, ego denial, alternate visions of the truth? What are some coping mechanisms for these isms? As always, thanks for your service. Please know that your voice has been one of the only things that has reliably brought me comfort in what has been a tumultuous year for me personally, even taking COVID out of it. Happy holidays and stay safe. Best, Barbara. <sighs> Parents, I can, I can speak a little bit from my experience. I did the best I could. I think at the time, setting boundaries is tricky, allowing my alcoholic to reach her bottom while keeping the kids safe was tricky. I I am grateful that she mostly drank at home, which meant that she was mostly not driving intoxicated and particularly not driving the kids intoxicated. I think some of the worst moments of the disease happened before I found recovery because we were both sick and I was definitely acting out of my response, my reaction to her disease, my own disease. I would like to encourage you, if you're listening, if you are in or have been in this place uh, that Barbara is writing about, the questions that she asks, just share your own experience, strength, and hope. I know none of us can answer these questions for somebody else, but if you can share your answers, your behavior, your tools that you found around this situation, we can put together an episode of Many Voices and share that with everybody who's there. Isms. I don't think we've done an episode specifically Hi, about isms. And Interesting. everyone who contributes to the Amanda sent us show. a voice share about so the episode, If I'm service. Not the Problem. I heard an incredible wisdom nugget in the uh, last episode if I'm not the problem, there is no solution. And it's funny, actually, Spencer, you then also highlighted afterwards, there was a share from, I think her name was Mary Lou, mentioning something like, when I feel the urge to give advice, that's the moment I need to put the focus on myself. Then she also mentioned something about that moment is a moment that 
I need to self-soothe, whereas my instinct is to maybe try to fix or, or make something better for other people. That is an incredible way of thinking about it. Like, just so glad for that new perspective. I actually want to share one way that I've noticed that kind of come up for me is I noticed this moment with my partner. I wasn't giving advice, but I definitely had this urge to be like, let's do it this way. It might be better to do it this way. And I noticed that was controlling. One, how important is it? Two, why is it my place to say that? Like, why do I know best? And it's fine. It doesn't have to to go my way. I, I had that at least Al-Anon awareness to at least pause, but I really felt that urge that I wanted to jump in there. And what came up for me when I paused was actually a lot of discomfort. And I felt like incredibly anxious and it's so weird, but I actually felt like fear that I might be physically harmed. Like I actually had like a visual in my head that if we said it that way, as opposed to my partner had said it the way he said it versus the way I thought maybe it would be better to do it better differently, I would be safer. And it was this really weird moment that the character defect of me, I don't know, controlling, thinking I know what's best, being weirdly perfectionist, especially on small things. What I noticed is it's really a, a character defense, like a survival skill that, I don't know, somewhere a younger part of me felt like it it might actually have been dangerous to do it that way. Like doing it this other way was better because I would feel safer. And I've been thinking a lot about body work, sort of the polyvagal like theory, my nervous system, the body keeps the score and just like how much there's how much wisdom there is in our body and how I ignore those. And why I wanted to share that is because I like that moment helped me see, wow, this is, Maybe why my urge there is to act out in these Al-Anon character defects. But the thing underneath is really like there was an inherent way that like the inner child in me felt incredibly unsafe and scared. And maybe that did save me once upon a time. And to not really feel shame and beat myself up for those controlling behaviors. But there's a reason underneath it that I need to look at. Pause, don't do the behavior. But I had to really sit with my feelings and like process what was going on for me in that moment. Instead of like just, you know, blurting out what I had to say, there was no need to zip the lip. That was not a moment I needed to share my, my, my opinion on that. But I really love what Mary Lou shared because it really nails on the fact that that moment that I felt like I wanted to insert myself into that change something in that moment was really an indicator that I needed to self-soothe. And uh, yeah, pay attention to like my own self-care, like, my own needs in that moment. And that really, I was completely oblivious to. I didn't know until I really paused and was like, okay, why do I feel the need to say this? That came up. And so I really love that. Like, I, I love that new perspective. If I ever am feeling that urge to chime in, maybe instead of just like so far, I've just been telling myself I need to pause on it and sort of think, notice what comes up. But that new perspective, like an actually an action of like, don't take this action, maybe a little Alanonic, but instead, what action can I take that's sort of in line with my higher power, in line with like self-care, self-love that 
would ultimately self-soothe me from the inside, maybe, as opposed to trying to change things outside. Yeah, so just wanted to share that. And it's interesting because it ties along with this topic of being a part of the problem, being a part of the solution, where I feel like this character defect, it kind of feels like it's a problem. But if I can dig in and pay attention, like it actually may be part of the solution because it's like a moment that I need to uh, pay more attention to. Of like, This is the moment I need to halt and meditate or take three really deep diaphragm belly breaths or take a walk or whatever. Yeah, like almost flipping it. So it's like, okay, the, mo- the problem arises, but then like, I know maybe what a solution in that moment might look like for me. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to share that because it, it definitely felt like a light bulb moment while I was listening. Take care and happy holidays. Thank you, Amanda, for that share. Thank you for those thoughts, your experience. Molly shares her love of poetry. Hi, Spencer. I was just listening to your most recent episode of The Recovery Show and loved hearing you talk about Poetry Unbound, which is a podcast that I mentioned in episode 347. I am a huge fan of Padre Gotuma and his podcast. I loved the connection you made between Dilruba Ahmed's poem, Phase 1, and how it brings to mind our Al-Anon program, Steps 9 and 4, Taking in Inventory and Self-Forgiveness. The other episode and poem that really moved me was Chen Chen's, I Invite My Friend to Dinner. A son writes to his parents, telling them that he is going to bring his boyfriend to dinner and instructing his parents on how to behave. Brings ACOA to mind, parenting our parents and trying to control that which we can't control. At the same time, the son wants to be accepted by his parents for who he is. What I love about this poem is that the boyfriend in the poem bonds with the mother while asking about the recipe for the soup they are eating. It reminds me of the possibilities that can occur when I quit trying to control people and situations. I often discover that my higher power's plan for me exceeds my expectations. Padre Gautama shares a similar story of his nervousness when he brought his boyfriend home to meet his parents. He tried to orchestrate how the connection would occur. In the end, his boyfriend bonded with his father by talking about physics, which was his father's passion, and bonded with his mother by dancing with her at a wedding, and his mom even knit him a blanket to thank him for the dance. Who could have imagined that? Just like our program, this podcast episode brought to mind the miracles that can occur when we make room for them. As Padraig said at the end of the podcast, I had to learn to observe the language of love as it would work, rather than dictate the language of love as I thought it should be. Wow. Best Molly. Thanks for that, Molly. And yeah, that poem was also a lot of program in there. I I think I recognized that at the time I was listening, but thank you for bringing that out and your understanding of how you see program, which we don't know what people's personal experience is, whether they're, they're in program or not, whether they have recovery tools or not, but how sometimes we can see those tools exhibited even in people who maybe haven't learned them the hard way that we did. Learned them some other hard way, I'm sure. And Peyton wrote, I was looking for a link to the Poetry Unbound episode that I talked about. I realized I had forgotten to include it in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 347. It is there now, both a link to that poem, Phase One, about forgiving ourselves, and a link to the podcast homepage. And I will put a link to the Poetry Unbound homepage in the notes here at therecovery.show slash 348 as well. So thanks for that, Molly.
And that's what I've got for today. Tell us about the third song that you picked. Sure. I picked, this is one of my favorite recovery songs. <laughs> and it's by Eminem. And it's Not Afraid. It is explicit. So if you check out the video, he does have, it's Eminem. But uh, so in the very, if you can find the version, there's a part in the song where he like speaks his words. And I'm going to read the first section. It says, I'm not afraid to take a stand. Everybody come take my hand. We'll walk this road together through the storm, whatever weather, cold or warm. Just letting you know that you're not alone. Holler if you feel like you've been down the same road. And one of the sections of the things is he speaks is, yeah, it's been a ride. I guess I had to go to that place to get to this one. Now, some of you may still be in that place. If you're trying to get out, just follow me. I'll take you there. And he has a whole section on on his on being in recovery. And but I, something about that just it empowers me. I just feel so good when I hear that song. I, again, I know it's Eminem. It's not everyone's favorite, but I just something about his lyrics. And I do feel like he was in recovery when he wrote this song. I just, yeah, something about that just is a good, is a good feeling. I'm looking at the lyrics here and there are a bunch of F-bombs. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I will try to find a, a radio version that I can also put up on the website. So if you want to listen to it without the F-bombs, I don't know how many of the the words in here that might be offensive would be eliminated from even a radio version. Right. But I have found some of his raps to be really powerful recovery songs. Yes. Thank you for listening. Please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk today about a problem you're facing, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.